Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Senior Lecturer in Elite Performance at the University of Central Lancashire, John Kiley. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Valve Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest, most accurate way to measure hamstring strength in under 90 seconds. So the Nordboard gives the right information so you can make the right decisions for your players at the right time. So it's already in use by over half the Premier League uh, and dozens of other elite teams around the world. Uh, so the Nordboard testing system is the is on its way to becoming the gold standard for measuring and monitoring hamstring strength. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the Nordboard, you can visit Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com to find out more. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Train With Push, the team behind the Push Band. So recently I've been using the Push Band uh, even more, so I'm using it to to program for, through their push portal so I'm, I'm pretty much using it for all exercises that I perform in the gym so not just the kind of traditional the big exercises that you might want your velocity from so I'm using it as a bit of a programming tool to, to program beforehand and then rather than writing all my kind of reps and sets down in a, in a little black book as I go along in the gym I'm using it a bit of a black like activity tracker um, just manually logging uh, all my reps and sets uh, for, the, for the exercise that I don't particularly want the velocity for. Um, so it's been a great tool for me, uh, a great time saver. Um, so if you do want to check out anything to do with Train With Push, um, they've got a great blog by the way, get over to trainwithpush.com and check them out today. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So I'm going to keep this intro nice and short because I gave uh, I gave John the uh, the big sell in episode 69, um, which turned out to be probably one of the most downloaded episodes in the first week of release. So if you haven't checked out episode 69, uh, get over to paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 69 for John's part one. So in part two, uh, he discusses coordination. So I'm going to leave it at that, um, let you get into the episode. Uh, firstly, let us know what you think. Let myself and John know what you think. Um, no doubt it'll go down, down an absolute treat, just like episode 69 did. So thanks for tuning in, uh, and I'll speak to you soon. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So today we've got much anticipated uh, part two with John Kiley. So me and John had discussed part two uh, prior to part one. So and I'm pretty this is the first real time I've felt definitely out of my comfort zone with the topic we're going to uh, well John's going to discuss because I haven't got anything to add. Um, so if if um, well just before we start I just want to ask John to introduce himself um, and welcome into the podcast. So welcome to the podcast, John. Hey, thanks, Rob. Pleasure. So anyone that didn't tune into episode 69, do you want to give us a little bit of a, just a quick intro about yourself? Uh, yeah, well, I guess I am a, like a, a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, just up to my neck in sports and training since since forever, really. Um, uh <sighs> I've worked pretty much as a as a gym instructor. Went to college in my kind of mid twenties. Did sports science. Came out and worked worked in the field. Went back to college for a couple of years. Came back out and worked in the field. Work for university now. Um, uh, predominantly uh, doing a PhD in coordination, which we're going to talk about. Uh, do a lot of work with uh, Irish rugby at the moment. Uh, previously, I was head of SNC for UK Athletics. Yeah, worked with quite a number of other people who were successful, and uh, quite a few that 
that weren't successful, <laughs> same as everyone else, but a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I had my own international career uh, way back, uh, so it was very average. But you know, I had that experience in the bag and uh, as a kind of a hard training athlete. So, so yeah, I guess what you could say is, um, hopefully, I have a mix of practical experience, just time in the ground. I've clocked up my ten thousand hours in the gym a couple of times over at this stage, and. Uh, yeah, and hopefully, you know, I, I've i thought about things deeply enough to give an informed opinion, maybe not 100% accurate like everyone else's, but at least it'll be an informed opinion. Mm-hmm. Cool. So what's your, um, I, I love the official title at UCLan. What's your official title? Oh, my official title is one of these. <laughs> everyone has a brilliant title these days, right? Yeah. So I'm a, officially a senior lecturer in elite performance. Nice. Good. Sounds great. I'd love to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the topic for today, uh, like I mentioned, we discussed prior to part one, coordination. So just run me through what you mean by what what, what is coordination? Uh, well, I guess the first thing to say is that we all have a, a sense of what coordination is. Uh, it's one of these things that if you're asked a question, you might find it difficult to define, but you'd know it if you saw it. Or, you know, you'd know what good coordination wasn't if you saw it. Um, from a point of view of definitions, there's a number out there. You know, some of them are just so simplistic that they're practically useless to us. You know, the ability to use different parts of the body together efficiently, for example, doesn't really tell us anything. The, you know, the standard academic one is the process of mastering uh, redundant degrees of freedom, which is pretty useless to you know not of much use to anybody really from a practical perspective um but but that would be the the standard academic one uh the concerted action of the muscles in producing movement be another kind of formal a bit bit stuffy um i think of it as uh, really it's how your your how your central nervous system so brain and spinal cord organize the body to satisfactorily solve a movement problem for the least uptake of resources. Now, just play that back. So it's how this brain and spinal cord organize the body to satisfactorily solve the movement problem at hand for the least uptake of of uh, resources. So I guess there's a couple of things to note in that. One is the, the, the satisfactorily. What does that mean? Um, and certainly in terms of movements, uh, like the movements I'm interested in, which tend to be on your feet type movements. So you're running, you're jumping, you're checking, you're turning, you're pivoting, you're spinning, those type of movements. There isn't like there's an exact right way to do it. It's, it's you find the right way for the situation that you're in and for your capabilities. So that's what I mean by satisfactorily. You, ne- you never find the perfect one. It's just your brain organizes your body to achieve the the goal at hand and then second part was for the for the least or for an acceptable uptake of surviving relevant resource so the obvious question what do i mean by survival relevant resource so what i mean is and the obvious one is energy so if i am and running is the best example if i'm running and i run every day for a number of years, what you'll find is on day one, I was very energy inefficient. And I'm, you know, a hundred or hundred, a couple of hundred hours later, I am much more efficient. So basically my body has organized my movement. So it costs me less energy because energy is survival relevant. Uh, as we came up, you know, through the, the, the span of evolutionary deep time, it was always important for us to save energy because you didn't know where the next meal was coming from and you survive based on your ability to be able to conserve energy. So when coordination, when, when we first learned to run, to move, uh, there's always this uh, impetus to save energy. Can I shave off some, can I save some energy by changing this movement or doing it like this? And gradually, and, and that's a, 
effectively one of the ways we learn how to move is just it's trial and error and eventually your central nervous system starts to learn that if i do it this way it costs me less so energy is a survival relevant resource now i can move efficiently but you know and, and conserve energy but the uh, something else that shapes how we how we move is pain so if I move in a certain way and I start to feel pain, then I'm I'm pushed away from that way of moving into a different type of movement because it doesn't make sense for me to have pain if, again, in evolutionary terms, uh, if I have pain to the extent that it causes damage to tissue and now I can't move or my movement is inhibited, then from an evolutionary perspective, I'm, I'm, I'm dead meat. So... So we are, we have this kind of embedded uh, attraction towards efficiency and away from from uh, movement discomfort. So both of those are kind of obvious. So we're shaped by saving energy and avoiding pain. But the other way are, are I, I guess there's some less obvious shaping forces at play as well. And one is it makes sense when we move. When you think of it in evolutionary terms, if I am being chased by some kind of saber-toothed tiger or something that wants me for for a, a snack, then the if I can move in such a way that spares neural resources, and by neural resources I just mean brain power. If I can save brain power, I can think uh, well. This this animal is faster than me, but I'm going to climb up that that tree. And I calculate, yes, I can. If I accelerate slightly, I'll be able to make that tree before the cat makes me, and I'm up the tree. Or I remember that. Well, actually, if I nip around the corner here, there's um there's a cave or there's a rock I can hide behind or whatever it might be. So again, it's we tend to as we learn and again this is familiar to everyone as we learn to walk as we learn to run when we start off we can't think about anything else it takes all, all of our attention all of our focus but as we get better it becomes more and more automated and by automated we just mean it's delegated down to lower and um, lower processing centers in the central nervous system so running becomes automated when you first learn to walk it takes all your attention and you fall and you have to pay close attention. But, you know, 10 years later, you're texting, you're whistling, you're, you're talking, you're, you know, you're, you're doing lots of cognitive functions while you walk. So that's the third thing. You need to spare neural resources so you can use them for more, more pressing survival, uh, tasks. So, so we have like energy pain, sp spare brain power, uh, there is another one, especially, I mean, I'm especially interested in running related movements. So th there is something else that, that is turning out, out to be really important. And, and that's, you need to avoid jerk. And what I mean by jerk is, and jerk is actually a formal term. Jerk is, uh, the, the rate of change of acceleration. So for example, when my foot hits the ground, there's an accelerate, there's a deceleration caused by, you know, the fact that the ground is stopping my foot. So there's a big deceleration. Now, when I hit the ground, there's also a peak in jerk, which is how quickly that acceleration changes. And I guess more and more it's becoming apparent that when you get, for example, running related injuries, overuse type injuries, that one of the reasons that the reason that's happening really is because there's because of jerk. Now, the way to think about this is when your brain uh executes any or when your your brain and body execute a movement your brain tries to anticipate what's going to happen next so when you're running part of the skill of learning to run is that you anticipate okay my foot is going to make contact with a very hard ground in x number of milliseconds so when it does that i'm going to feel this big you know impulse of force up through my foot so to stop my knee from collapsing i'm going to coact i'm, I'm going to co-contract these muscles and i'm going to hold my body in this position so in, in essence your body predicts this is going to happen and your body becomes you know over 
the years and years and years of our youth as we develop, as we practice, as we go through trial and error, become really, really good at projecting what's going to happen and counteracting what's going to happen by these pre-activation strategies. And that's a huge part of coordination. We learn to anticipate and and uh, counteract before something happens. But what JERK does is JERK is very, very difficult for, this, for the central nervous system to predict. So what you end up is you land, and if you've high JERK, what it means is that you don't have this co-contraction patterns that go on to buffer jerk and your and what jerk effectively does is just slam your tissues slams them into end right in end range jerks them about a little bit in a way that isn't controlled that isn't dampened by co-activation and it's just getting constantly snapped snap snap after a while you develop a hot spot that gets worse and worse it might adapt your movement pattern and then you're on the road to injury or at least a lot of pain in in an isolated area so it's not just that you learn to coordinate to save energy. You do to an extent, but it's not just that. It's what you have to do is you have to resolve all of these issues. You have to find a way to run that is efficient, that spares you from pain, that you can automate so it spares, you know, it spares brain power and that, that moderates jerk. So it closely controls jerk. So coordination isn't about becoming you know, it totally totally minimizing um, energy expenditure. It's about trying to balance all these. Uh, and there was back in the in the kind of early fifties and sixties, there was a one of the early complexity theorists. A guy called Herbert Simon had a great word for it. Mm. He, he and he said he said what you do is in situations like this is that you find a way to satis you find a solution that is satisfactory in terms of it achieves the goal. Uh, and it's just about good enough to balance saving energy, avoiding pain, sparing neural resources, minimizing jerk. And he called it, it's, you, you find a solution that satisfies, it, it satisfactorily suffices. Uh, so yeah, so that's what I meant by survival relevant resources. So how do we so how do we learn how to coordinate movement then? So when we start off this process, and obviously this process starts off, you know, as soon as you're born, and you know, an infant will have some deeply embedded uh, little reflexes, you know, and they'll clench their fists and so on, and and that process really progresses gradually as they get older, and the more you move the better you get at coordinating. Uh, and effectively what happens is your brain is just sending a little, uh, as, as a young child, it's just sending a little sputter of, you know, electricity to the muscles and they flick and there's a little tick and there's a squeeze. But gradually the more you activate, the more, the more your brain tunes into, okay, this is my finger, this is my hand. This is that patch of skin, and it's, the brain starts to map out in the motor cortex the the neurons that control specific you know patches of tissue in the body, and every time you activate, you get a sensation back that's that's feedback effectively that says, well, when you sent me this signal, this is what happened, and this is how my finger moved, and you do that a hundred thousand, a million, multiple millions of times. And you learn to anticipate, okay, if I send this signal, this will happen. And all the time when you send that signal, that signal, it, there's, there's a feedback loop that goes straight back to your spinal cord, motor cortex. It's, you sent this signal, my finger moved this much. Okay, I didn't want it to move that much. I'm going to adjust that signal and so on. And it's, it's, and I guess the important point out of this is, and I guess, it, and I think it is a relevant point for when we talk with pra practical implications. We often think about activation in sport uh, or, you know, in skilled athletic movements. We think of activation as it's like something that's stored in your brain, like some type of motor program in some big library system that you plug in and this is my running program. But, but that's not really the way it works. Really what's happened is you have, through vast experience, all your 
maturation, developmental years where you're moving, you are you've learned to map this. If I send this signal from these bunch of neurons, this is, is going to happen in, and I'm going to move in this way. And eventually you learn to triangulate. This is what I intend to do. This is the activation I'm going to send. This is the sensation I should send back or that, that, that should come back to me. So, and I guess the key thing is that I, every time you send an activation signal, sensation changes automatically. And every time sensation changes, then activation changes as well. So it's a, it's an ongoing feedback, feed forward loop. And the two of them, activation and sensation become kind of irreparably entwined. So one automatically changes the other. They're not two separate things. And again, the reason I'm, you know, kind of dwelling on this is that we often think that it's all about the signal you send, but it's not. It's it's also, it's just as much about the signal that's coming back. And the interesting thing is that if you see people who've had, like there are certain uh, diseases, uh, afflictions of the nervous system that impair someone's ability to get sensory feedback, but don't impair your ability to send a signal. So basically you're... The, the mechanisms for sending a, a signal to the muscles is fine. It's just your sensation is inhibited. And typically those people can't move. They can't move because, I you know, they can move, but they can't, they can't walk, for example. They can't reproduce skilled movements. They can send a signal to the muscle and cause the muscle to contract, but without the feedback to say, ooh, that's too much or that's too little, then they can't move. You know, and like, and they can't, for example, they can't walk. They could push themselves off, off a chair, but they'd fall. They couldn't stabilize. Uh, and I guess that's just worth mentioning because we don't normally prioritize or we don't normally emphasize the importance of sensation, of sensory feedback in producing skilled movement. So you mentioned, you mentioned there a couple of times, um, adolescents going through kind of the stage of, maturation is is what you're saying there kind of giving more credence and and um back up to the whole kind of lta model of exposing young football players rugby players whatever it may be to to multiple movements so not just getting football players to play football rugby players to play rugby but getting them climbing getting them doing different activities to to build up this um library of of movement yeah well you could certainly use this as an argument to support that uh so that would be kind of the the dangers of early specialization uh in in terms of i start a sport very young and i stick with that sport and i the predominance of my movements are related to that sport uh now i think the kind of the that argument is Maybe done and dusted to the extent that typically early specialize. If you specialize early, you tend to get a lot of injuries as an adult, and I would think that that's an artifact of the fact that the types of movements you have have been limited, uh, limited to that sport you've specialized in. So I guess there's two ways of looking at it. The obvious thing to say is, well, there's a huge benefit of playing multiple sports or engaging in multiple physical activities. Uh, and to a sense, I think that's a no brainer. I think you, you absolutely need to do that. Uh, now, in certain sports, though, you you need to be specializing early. You know, if you want to be a swimmer or a gymnast, you, you need to be doing that stuff early. I guess what you could take from it is that, okay, maybe I'm going to specialize in my sport early, but I'm going to make sure that around this young athlete, I'm building a large diversity of training activities. So even if their competitive movements from a young age are all within one sport, you know, be it a gymnast, I'm going to put lots of movements around their training. But cert and certainly if you, if you train in only a very limited range of movements, you are going to be fragile. Ultimately, you're, you're going to be vulnerable. And, and that's just the nature of our, of our nervous system. We're, you know, we're wired to adapt. We're wired to be multi-skilled. Does, does, does animals out there that are faster than us, does animals out there that are stronger than us, but there's none that can 
you know, walk down the road, walk and text at the same time, or play the violin. Or <laughs> people that can do that, John. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 we are the most adaptable. Yeah. Um, if I try and put it back to kind of a sports perspective, and it, and you know, it's an interesting question you raise, but it, it doesn't. It, it's not even just relevant to early specialization and and the, and the potential dangers of that. It's let's take overuse injuries in running. I mean, the preponderance of overuse injuries is massive. This, you know, it depends what kind of surveys you look at, but, mo- you know, a huge predominance of runners get regularly injured and the vast, vast majority of those injuries are overuse injuries. What's the cause of that? Well, potentially, or most sensibly, the clever money is on the cause of that is you're executing a movement, uh, a very narrow band of movements repetitively into fatigue without adequate recovery or without adequate uh, diversity of movement. So, for example, if I I develop a little hotspot around my knee because, you know, I've been running a certain way for for X number of years and now my volume is up and uh, let's say some fibers get tired or injured and now I have less movement choice and now all of a sudden my band of movement diversity decreases when I run and all of a sudden, you know, I'm getting that knee has been pulled in a slightly, it's been pulled one way all the time. And I start to develop a hot spot somewhere on the, on the, in the tissue. And all of a sudden that degenerates and that causes me then to change my technique to avoid that pain. And that throws load onto some other tissue that isn't used to handling that load. And bang, there I am. My knee is sore. I'm off training and I'm scratching my head wondering what happened. Yeah, well, what happened was, you executed too narrow a band of movements too much into fatigue and you didn't give yourself a chance and and all of a sudden that stress had to come out somewhere and it just happened to come out on your knee or on your hamstring or in your Achilles or wherever it might be. So when we're faced with a a new movement problem, say coming through um, to childhood, actually learning to run, uh, what is what is happening during that process? Well, that process starts out with you as a kid. You take a step, maybe you fall over, maybe you wobble. Again, it's taken all of your attention, all your concentration. Uh, for you to move forward, neurons in your motor cortex have to fire off. They stimulate uh, muscular tissue, uh, muscle fibers contract they pull you move you make a mistake but every time you make a mistake uh you you effectively learn and it's that constant process of trial and error trial and refine um that that gradually leads us to the state where you know we go from wobbly toddlers to you know people who can who are so used to walking and running that that we can do that and have a conversation with our training partner. Um, and, and it's really, it's all down to the, the mapping of relationships between brain and body. So in, in, in the motor cortex, there are effectively what are called motor maps where uh, all the tissues of your body are effectively mapped out in terms of their relationships with the neurons that control them. So, Essentially, what happens is I fire off these neurons and I know that this will happen in a reliable way. And and that's the mapping process, but it takes time. Uh, and I don't know if I mentioned this the last time we talked, but even if you look at walking and you look at it in a very fine-grained way, we think that, well, walking is really easy, right? You know how to walk when you're seven or eight, but actually you keep improving the efficiency of how you walk well into your third decade, well into your mid-twenties. So beneath the surface, there's all these refinements coming on online all the time, just related to practice. The more you practice it, the more refined you get. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested to ask about um, increasing the efficiency of sprinting. Is that something that you can elaborate on? Well, if we take increasing this, the efficiency of, of any kind of run or yeah, jump, yeah. Uh, related movement. It's actually a good question. So maybe if I backtrack a tiny bit, uh, 
I, I might be able to to maybe shine a light on this uh, a little better. So one of the reasons that the, you know this we have this unbelievably long uh, period of dependency compared to you know other primates or other animals and and that's there so we can effectively learn how to move properly uh, but when we develop those maps i mentioned what we do is we, we get a very accurate sense of our capabilities of how strong we are of how much we can stabilize so for example uh if you're faced with any movement like let's say a sprint or a jump or whatever it may be, your brain instantly, automatically, without you being aware of it, does all these type of calculations and says, okay, well, yeah, I think I can execute that, but I will need to do this. I will need this pulse of power from my, you know, the big muscles around my hips. I will need to position my foot this far ahead of my center of gravity. And it's all these stuff that become, they happen really instinctively. So basically you have, you have a knowledge of your tissue capacities. Then, your brain decides, okay, I'm going to signal those uh, tissues and this will happen. And then the third leg of this stool is you get this sensory feedback and that helps tie it all together. So you have, this is what I'm capable of. This is my perception of what I'm capable of. This is how I need to activate it to uh, fulfill the movement task. And then you get the sensory information that informs you as you're moving, how you're going. And as that sensory information informs you how you're going, the activation changes to adjust around it. So if you were to think of it as a kind of a Venn diagram, as those three overlapping circles, there's what's my tissue actually capable of? How, how do I activate that to, to accomplish the task? And then here's the sensation I need to interpret to refine how I'm do how I'm performing the movement to uh, accurately achieve the movement. And that kind of process happens instantaneously. That sensation changes activation, activation, activation changes sensation. That happens on an ongoing smooth basis. It doesn't actually make sense when you get down to it to think of us act to think of activation and sensation as totally different things because they're so intertwined that they're both essential for movement accuracy, movement proficiency. So to get back to your question about, you know, how, how might this apply to sprints? So the way I would think of it is, and I've just described, you know, if you can think of it as three overlapping circles, we have tissue capacity, we have activation, and we have sensation. They're the three things your brain needs to, un to, to knowledge of to perform a movement accurately and adequately and proficiently. So, so basically, you're, you're in the blocks. You, what your, the calculations your brain are, are, are making beneath the, the conscious level of awareness. It's through prior experience. It knows this is the capacity of the tissue. If I activate it like this, this is going to happen. I know from prior experience that, that this is what I need. This is the sensory information I expect back. If I get different, I need to change what I'm doing instantaneously. So all that's gone on under the hood. Now, your question was how you would improve. So this suggests to me that there's three broad roads that you can go down to improve your ability to sprint are essentially your ability to perform a coordinated, powerful movement through your legs. So one is one that we all know and love and understand is certainly in the SNC world. If I increase my tissue capacity, allowing me to generate more force or to put more force through that tissue, then that gives me a potential to be faster. It only gives me a potential because it all depends on, okay, now I have this improved tissue capacity, but how accurately can I activate it? Because if I can't activate it properly, if I can't take this enhanced, stronger tissue and build it into my sprint movement pattern, well, I'm just carrying extra tissue really, and that's going to slow me down. So I need to be able to 
coordinate, I need to be able to build it into my movement pattern. Okay, so tissue capacity and activation. There are two things we can train. The third leg of that three-legged stool I talked about was sensation. So it's sensation that is, as I mentioned, in that kind of inseparably entwined relationship informs activation and changes activation. Okay, so I know I can train activation. I know I can train tissue capacity. Sensation is something that we never really talk about or think about. Can I train sensation? So if I was looking at, if I was working with a sprinter and was looking at improving their ability to sprint, to be really powerful in a unilateral way through their legs, I would look at those three, I would certainly be looking at those three uh, routes. And to be honest, in a sense, there's no other way to become faster. You have to improve one of those or all of those in an integrated way. You have to improve tissue qualities. You have to improve your ability to activate and your ability to activate is inseparably entwined with your ability to interpret sensory information. They're the only three routes, you know, really when you when it all boils down that you can make somebody more more powerful more efficient faster more uh, give them better running endurance for example so i guess i'm not really saying that we don't know we know tissue capacity and that's something that we try and train all the time right in the gym that's that's a prime goal uh, we may not think of it we turn we tend to use you know strong just get strong make you stronger but stronger is always strength is a product of this is the capacity of the tissue and this is my central nervous system's ability to activate that tissue that's what strength is it's those two things it can't be anything else really so that's what we train when we train for strength normally what we're doing is we're doing a little bit of both we're doing some movement you know i don't know let's say we're 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 squatting or it could be any movement what we're doing is we're putting load across the tissue in the expectation that that's going to cause the tissue to remodel in some way so that tissue is going to come back more resilient at the tissue level that that's all that happens there can't be anything else that happens you're looking to change structure by putting load across it now we may argue there might be fiber type transitions and so on, but they're all a product of the load that goes through it. And on the other hand, it's how you activate it. And that's that's a, a, a central nervous system issue. That's a skill issue. That's the skill of movement. And anytime we see strength increases, it's a product of one or other or most normally both of those things happening simultaneously. So and and, and when we improve in any movement, it's always that there's always I've either improved the quality of the tissue or I've improved the quality of the activation of the tissue. Now, these aren't kind of fluffy notions. We know that, I mean, most obviously muscle changes when you put load across it, right? When you train, when you strength train, muscle changes. Uh, but it's not just muscle. It's like all the tissue changes, fascia, tendon, bone, everything changes. Now, for example, bone will be over a long time scale, but but everything changes. It, it's and I, I guess the term you could use is it's bioplastic. That's how that's how the body remembers, if you like, prior experiences. The body changes as a product of those prior experiences. So muscle changes the more I train it. Be it in a strength context or an endurance con context the muscle, the muscle chemistry changes. It's bioplastic. From the perspective of kind of brain and spinal cord, well, obviously the term is neuroplastic. And it's the brain, within the brain, structures change. Linkages become enhanced or dimmed. And neurons that are involved in the activation of skilled movements that you regularly perform, those linkages become quicker or sorry, be, be, become better, become more efficient, more accurate. And neurons uh, belong to, let's say, segments of tissue that you don't normally use together, their connection dims because it's not been used. And like, I guess the, the, 
standard buzzword is uh, or buzz phrase is uh, tissues that are neurons that fire together, wire together, fire apart, wire apart. Uh, and and uh, they're just a, that's how brain and body remember things really. At a micro level, the structures are changed as a product of the physical activities that you've put them through. And that's how skill becomes embedded, not just in the brain, but it also becomes embedded in the body because we condition our tissues based on how we regularly move them. And the more we move them in a certain way, the better conditioned they become to move in that certain way until we fall off the edge and we overuse them. And we start to, through that overuse and through overusing them in only a limited uh, pattern of, of a limited range of movement patterns, they start to become a little more fr fragile, a little more overworked. There's a little more wear and tear. And eventually that starts us on the decline into uh, discomfort, uh, movement coordination change and subsequent overuse type injury. So... Having all that's been said in the over the last 40 minutes, what does that mean for, for practice? So in terms of, you know, what this kind of conceptual lens can contribute to, to practice, maybe a good place to start is with the principle of specificity. So we all know what that is. It's one of the like logs, long standing dogma of SNC practice, coaching practice, if you want to get optimal transfer from a training activity to competitive activity, then it needs to be specific. Uh, you know, and at a certain level that makes sense. And what it's led to is, you know, if, if I found a sprinter or a jumper, I'm going to do a powerful movement. It might be plyos or it could be, you know, clean from hang or it might be whatever it might be. And we think, okay, well, that's specific. But where that, principle starts to fall down for me is, uh, well, what isn't specific? Let's say I'm a sprinter, but my hamstring still keeps breaking down. Okay, well, maybe I can, you know, and the hamstrings break down in sprinting because there's such high tensions put across the muscle under, you know, conditions of high speed and high impact. And you get a little coordination problem, you know, you, you coordinate incorrectly by a fraction and ping, you know, fibers are going to go. So, but I, I can make that, we, we talked about tissue capacity and can I improve tissue capacity? I can make that tissue capacity better by putting, let's say, an isometric stress across that hamstring tissue. Now, is that specific? Well, it's slow. It, it, it does no movement whatsoever, but there's a high tension across it. You know, so we can make that hamstring better. So we can take that, that hamstring out. We can put a very, very unspecific load. If you want to think of it like that across that hamstring, we can make that hamstring, that, that, that hamstring will adapt plastically. We can, so we can make that hamstring tougher, more resilient, better able to handle high, quick, uh, loads. And then we can put it back into the coordinated movement of sprinting and you, you're going to be a better sprinter. So that's highly unspecific training. But, you know, what we've talked about, we can take it out. We can improve the capacity of tissue. And then the last job to be done is make sure that you, you learn to coordinate that new improved component. You need to, you, you need to adapt and, and integrate that into your normal sprinting coordination pattern. And if you do that, then you are now potentially a better if you believe that if you can put more uh, high load through your hamstring, you're going to be quicker, which, you know, I, I, I think is is critically important. If you can coordinate that new improved fun uh, functionality, then you're going to be a better sprinter. But that's not specific training. So I guess I'm going the long way around saying principle of specificity is so fuzzy and so inaccurate as to, for me, to be meaningless. I'll give you one other example. I mentioned that, you know, for me, sensation is, if we go back to our three-legged stool, tissue capacity, activation, sensation. Sensation is the thing we've taught the least about traditionally. It's not something that we ever think of, well, how do we train this more directly? 
It's something that obviously gets trained indirectly every time we move, every time we exercise, we're always getting sensory feedback. Uh, so in a sense, you could say we're training that, but let's say, um, let's say I'm injured. So normally what happens when you're injured is obviously you take some time out. You don't use that muscle uh, or you don't use it in that coordinated pattern that you normally use in your, in your competitive event. And what happens is your ability to sense sensory information from that muscle is decreased because you're not moving it. It's decreased again. We talked about the positive effects of plasticity in terms of adapting around training. But the negative effects of plasticity are if you don't use it, you're going to start to lose it. And the problem with neuroplasticity is you lose it really quick because the brain is a limited space. And there's all these other competing things that want that, what you could call cortical real estate. They don't want that brain area being used. As soon as it's not being used, there's a phenomenon called competitive plasticity where other movements, functions, uh, we'll try and, you know, we'll start to integrate the brain space that you used for this particular movement into their other particular movement. So basically, I'm going the long way around saying movement skill, every time you're injured, dulls and it dulls pretty quickly. Now, we always think of the tissue, you know, if you get injured, well, how's the tissue? How is it in scan? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, we rarely think of, well, actually, there's there's not just the tissue deficit here. There's not just tissue damage. The fact that it's not being used means that there's going to be a skill deficit a consequent to this injury. So it's not just about getting the tissue back to normal. There also needs to be a rebooting of kind of the neural uh, wiring, the neural software that handles that movement. Um, and and. Yeah, and I and I think that's really important and not something we conventionally think about. We always seem to have in our heads that when strength is equalized, we're, we're good to go. But no, that's not the case. There is going to be a legacy there. It's going to be an unseen legacy. But that legacy is coordination has been inhibited because both sensation, in, the interpretation of sensation and activation have both been dulled by misuse. Um, oh, sorry, by disuse. So I guess... One of the big unanswered questions we had then was how, how can we more specifically train sensation if it's so important? How how might we train it? And and that's a really open question. And I don't have a a solid answer that you can point to you know hard evidence or anything like that. But I can you know I can tell you where my thoughts are on it and where they are at the moment. I think yeah we can we can put the athlete in movement problems or positions where they have to dial in in a very uh, intense way to sensation. And if they don't dial into sensory information, then they won't be able to complete the movement. I'll give you an example. Um, if you were to use a, let me see, most people might be familiar with a, a single leg RDL movement that you would do without any weight or an arabesque type movement. So let's say you stand on a foam pad, you might be barefoot, you might not, but you're on some type of instability surface and you, you, you invert, you, you bring your upper body forward, you bring your leg up behind while you're on this instability surface. Now, when you're doing that movement, you're not thinking consciously, I'm dialing into sensation here. But what you'll be aware of, if you do a few movements like that, you'll be aware that all of a sudden you're starting to get some fatigue in your lower leg. And if you were to look at your lower leg, what you'd see is that there's all these little reflexes kicking off. You're not controlling them. Your brain isn't even controlling them. These are just spinal cord reflexes that are kicking off all the time to stabilize you. Now, for me, that's a way of training sensory information. It's reflex is picking up a movement, a sensation. It's sending a signal to the spinal cord or to lower brain centers. Lower brain centers are kicking it straight back and say, do this, do this, do this. Under the threshold for awareness, of awareness of the conscious brain, totally automatically, 
But what you're doing is you're training it by putting yourself in that situation. So, for example, a way you could train sensation is lots of those single leg stance, stability type movements. There may be, it may be just on a solid surface. It could be on stability, a wobble cushion, a foam pad. It could be any of those things. But really, it's the type of movement where, and I guess the criteria that I would use to regulate whether or not this movement was adequate to stimulate um, the positive adaptation you want is that does the athlete have to concentrate intensely to stay balanced? And if they do, you know, if they, if they start talking or thinking about something else, they fall over. And it's a very subtle thing. But what you'll find is you put athletes into this into these positions and they have to concentrate. They can't tell you what they're really concentrating on, but and but what they are concentrating on on unbeknownst to themselves is they're just freeing up the space to interpret that sensory information that can kick off all those little stabilization reflexes that keep them upright. Now it's, those reflexes aren't just employed for single leg static stabilizations when you put a foot forward to change direction every footfall when you run uh you know any legged movement you do uh you know the final step prior to taking off to shoot a basket whatever it might be they all involve those reflexes but we never think about them we never directly train them we don't really know how to directly train them and all those reflexes are driven by sensation so as much as we can make an educated guess as how we might train these things, I would think something like that would be really useful. Single leg stabilization. Um, and again, it falls outside of our normal way of thinking about things. But if you boil it all back to the three indisputable factors that movement is dependent on your ability to activate what you got to exploit it to its fullest, and that's you know, integrally dependent on your ability to interpret the sensory information that, that, that comes back from that tissue, then it seems like to me a worthwhile avenue, something to explore. Uh, I've used it in practice myself. I know other uh, practitioners that use it. Um, and yeah, I think it's worth having a go, seeing how your athletes feel after a couple of weeks. Do they feel a little better? Do they feel a little more secure in certain movements? It's an interesting experiment for people, but I'm not trying to say it is the way. It's just as far as I've gotten, figuring out their way to train, to, to try and emphasize sensation in training. So there's those, you know, static type movements. Uh, but there's also, for example, traditional, what we think of as movement drills. So normally with movement drills, you know, everyone uses them, slow high knees or lunge walks or whatever it might be. But again, a commonly used tool. Now, the slight issue, well, the issue I have with movement drills is that once you learn how to do them, normally you can do them easily. So they just become warm-up movements. But another way of looking at it, given the background that we've just talked about, is if I make the movements more difficult. So the athlete has to zoom in, has to take, has to be aware of bodily sensations, has to concentrate to maintain balance. You know, so it doesn't just become a warm-up drill, it now becomes, it's, this is actually a movement skill drill. Does that add value? And I think, you know, it certainly would. It enhances sensation and enhancing that sensory interpretation automatically improves movement, automatically improves balance, automatically improves stability, automatically improves uh, movement control under impact, all of those things. So a practical example might be, uh, let's say a movement pattern that you would use in warm-up might be something like a slow high knees and then uh, into a lunge. So a slow high knees to lunge walk. Again, a really common movement pattern. But if you were to, for example, give the athlete instructions, well, come up into that slow high knees, but this is the posture I want you to maintain. And I want you to pause at the top of that slow high knees. And then I want you to slowly reach out with your uh, trail leg and reach forward. And then I want you to, you know, you basically, you layer on instructions. 
to add a degree of difficulty so the athlete isn't automatically doing the movement in a way that's easy for them and the way that's practiced. Or you could give them a brush pole to hold overhead or give them one dumbbell to hold uh, in, in, in one hand or get them to do a barefoot or get to do them through sand or anything like that that just complicates the movement problem, increases the difficulty so that executing that exercise keeps pushing out the athlete's ability to to control movement, which is where we started off. I mean, that's what coordination you know, is, your ability to formalize the the right solution to the movement problem you're currently faced with. Uh, so I think building in all those little challenges, it's safe, it can be time efficient. And I would be very surprised if, you know, uh, listeners, if they haven't done it, and if they use it with athletes, didn't see benefits, especially potentially with uh, maybe athletes who don't have a long training background or the opposite end of the scale, athletes who have a very large training background, but there hasn't been a lot of diversity in that training background. So you might be, you know, maybe have, you're on a few years of sports specific training as we conventionally think of it, which tends to be, you know, a, a narrow enough band of training modalities. Uh, so, yeah, so I guess they're just three thoughts I would have, you know, the principle of specificity. I think about that. What does it mean? Because, you can train your tissue. Once you make that tissue better, it doesn't matter if it looks like, feels like, is the same speed as your, your sport-specific movement. It's about getting the tissue better. And then it's, can I enhance that that communication between activation and sensation by putting people in movements that they have to dial into sensory information, they have to, to concentrate on, that challenge them either from a balance, a stability, or a, a movement range perspective. And... Uh, yeah, so I guess to sum it all up, I think that, you know, the deeper understanding of the underpinnings of coordination can help inform our practice. Maybe not, maybe you don't think that the, the what I've suggested are, are good solutions, but, you know, once you understand the basics, the beauty of it is you, you make up your own solutions, you make up your own, you know, tra- exercises, you make up your own training tools to try and enhance it. But ultimately for me, we can talk about strength. We can talk about power. Yeah. You know, and you know what we have for 40, 50 years. <laughs> but unless you can coordinate those movements, doesn't matter how strong you are, you know, it, you, you will not get faster unless you can use that enhanced capacity. You will not have more endurance, you know, uh, un, unless you can get the, unless you can activate the muscles in the most energy efficient way. And, and that takes practice. Uh, and it doesn't just take sport specific practice. I think it takes other things built in around that sport specific practice, you know, as we've just discussed to, to optimize that capacity. So I feel I'm after going off on one massive <laughs> no, no, rant no. there. So, uh, <laughs> no, sorry for that. No, it's all about that. It's great. It's, uh, it's really, really interesting. Um, so just just before I let you go, uh, I know you put an article out just recently, and that kind of brings me to where where people can keep in touch with with your thoughts and and what you've got going on. Uh, so yeah, I um, there's a article available in open access, so freely available on. So it's on the f- frontiers in movement science, but if you type in frontiers running Kylie. Uh, it, it'll bring it to the, the f- full text. And uh, yeah, it's that is, that's part of a series of articles I'll be bringing out. The, the next one isn't out yet. The next one is more practical. That's very much the deep background, what's happening in the brain, what's happening in the spinal cord and so on. But yeah, um, hopefully if people read it, they'll find it interesting. And um, if they don't, or if they disagree with that, and feel free to get in touch and drop me a line and it'll be good to hear from people. Nice. So what's your, uh, do you know your Twitter handle off the top of your head? Yeah, it's um, at Simply Sports Sci. So Simply Sports and then SCI at the end of sports. Cool. And the second one will be uh, Open Access as well, obviously, the second article of the series. Um, hopefully that okay. that's the plan. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for your time, John. Really appreciate it for... Um, 
for part two. So yeah, um, we'll keep in touch and I'll, uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thanks a million, Rob. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 76 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with John. So as I mentioned at the start, if you haven't checked out uh, one of the most downloaded episodes so far uh, of the podcast in episode 69, which was part one with John, make sure you check that out at paceyperformance.co.uk forward slash 69. So massive thanks to the, all the sponsors today, both Val Performance and Train With Push. Um, plenty of guests, great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so keep in, keep tuned in to the podcast and I will speak to you soon.